Hi, everybody. It's Steph from Freedom Made Radio. I hope you're doing very well. It is March the 24th, 2011. This is an introduction to ethics, part four. We're just going to keep piling these things up like flapjacks until we've reached satiety in sugar, if not substance. So there are two aspects that I'd like to talk about to the question, why be ethical? Why? Why? Why bother being virtuous? Which I think is a very good question because a lot of people seem to answer in the extremely negatory and those who answer in the pository tend to be rather exploited because people use their ethical standards to control and manipulate them and uh, rob from them. Oh, you care about the poor. Give me your taxes. So why be good in a rational framework? Why? Well, first thing I'd like to talk about to frame the two answers that I have for that. One is social and the other is um, psychological is to say expressly and openly without a hint of shame that these both involve an argument from effect. Oh, yes, I can feel it crawling up my leg too. Let's just let it have its way with us, shall we? And why, oh, why am I allowing the sinister, slithery, antennae-armed, creepy-crawly called the argument from effect into a pure and pristine, logical, crystalline, ethical system? Well, because virtue is different from UPB. UPB is not subject to arguments from effect because it's self-contained logic. Whereas ethics, as I've been arguing that it's relational and so on, it is entirely subject, not completely defined by, but it's subjected to and shaped by the argument from effect, which is why you should not have higher ethical standards than those you're currently involved with. That's an argument from effect. So it behooves me, since I have spent low these many years railing against the argument of effect, to explain how it fits into this framework. Well, UPB is physics. I like to use these analogies, right? UPB is physics. And physics is not subject to the argument from effect. The truth or falsehood of a physics theory is not subject to an argument from effect. So quantum physics is not proven or disproven or made more or less valid by whether people like it or not, whether it makes sense to them, whether it violates our sensibilities. The Manhattan Project, at least the theory behind the Manhattan Project, did not become false if we don't like nuclear weapons, right? So physics is not subject to the argument from effect. It is an argument from first principles in science with um, obviously logic as its first standard and empirical verification as its second. So that's UPB. UPB is not conditional upon its effects. So uh, people say, well, UPB means uh, no initiation of force and property rights, which means no state. Well, sorry, but uh, that's just the way it is. That's the way that the, uh, the theory in an ironclad way shakes out. State equals invalid according to UPB. And people may not like that, but that doesn't matter because it is not subject to the argument from effect because it's a self-contained logical argument. Now, ethics is different. I mean, positive ethics, things you should do, things uh, which are of value to do. Positive ethics is different in the same way that engineering is different from physics. In physics, the truth or falsehood of a statement is contained relative to its logical coherence, and uh, to some degree, it's fitting with existing or compatible theories. And, of course, the empirical testing. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. It doesn't matter what 
external standards there are to the equation and its evidence or to the theory and its evidence. The fact that religious people don't like the theory of evolution doesn't make it any more or less true. <laughs> well, I guess it makes it a little more true. <laughs> Actually, for me anyway. So, the parallel for ethics in the realm of the sciences, right? UPP is physics. Ethics is engineering. Engineering is significantly subjected to the argument from effect or to the effects of what it's trying to do. So I'll sort of give you an example. What is a good bridge in engineering? There's no clear answer because it's relative. It's relative to the requirements. It's relative to the required longevity. Uh, and it's relative to cost constraints. It's relative to constraints in materials available. It's relative to... Uh, labor skills, uh, lots of things are relative in the realm of engineering. So they built bridges during the invasion of France in 1944. They would build these like ridiculously shaky bridges just to get things across, get troops across, sometimes even get tanks across because the Germans may have blown up the bridges. Those bridges were not, of course, designed to last for very long, weeks maybe at the most. They were pontoon bridges, some of them. I'm just crazy They'd go in and build a bridge like in six hours. Was that a good bridge? Well, I think when you're being shelled, you want it to be relatively quick. So that's a good bridge. Would that be a good bridge for joining um, some island to the mainland with lots of commuters and trucks? No, that would not be a good bridge, right? So a good theory in science is, is it logical and does it conform to the, the evidence? That's it. That, that's it. <laughs> There's no other right standard. But is it a good bridge in the engineering world? Well, let's say I want you to build a bridge out of balsa wood. And I say, is that good? Well, there's no way to know. If I'm really finicky and hire Frank Lloyd Wright to build my bridge for balsa wood for my Model Z train Z scale train set, well, yeah, that's it's for my toy trains, that's fine. Balsa wood be good. Uh, if it's for um, truck deliveries to the Hoover Dam, no, not so good. Right, so what is a good bridge? What is a good building? A good building is one that is appropriate to the cost, the constraints, the materials, the requirements, uh, and so on. It, does it make sense to build an earthquake-proof building on a non-earthquake in a non-earthquake zone? No, so it's over-engineered. It's not a sensible use. It's not a good building because it's too expensive. Does it make any sense to do the opposite? No, then it's a bad building. It's cheaper, but it's a much, much greater risk of falling down. So I think you sort of get, you get the point, and you can think of this in terms of software or electrical engineering or anything like that. You don't want to over-engineer. You don't want to under-engineer, right? You don't want to build it too strong because that's expensive. You don't want to build it too weak. You don't want to build it so that it will never wear out because that also is probably going to be too expensive, and if it's even possible. You don't want to build it there so it wears out too quickly. Uh, so it's a very complex it's relational, right? What is a good bridge? Well, it's relative to a number of constraints. What is good behavior? What is virtue? It's relative to a number of constraints, relational and otherwise, that we've been talking about over this past uh, 3.4 podcasts. <laughs> I don't know, 0.4. Let's see how far we go. So I really, really want to make that case that it works on so many levels, this metaphor, right? Because engineering is applied physics. 
and the application of physics to particular circumstances, which, I mean, engineers always have to take into account physics. Right? You can't just ignore physics, otherwise you can't be an engineer. But it's just the starting point. It's the necessary but not sufficient. Right? Like, of course, a good bridge has to conform to basic physics. Uh, but after that, I mean, that's a given. I mean, why would you, right? And, of course, a theory of virtue has to conform with non-aggression and property rights. I mean, that to me is just a given. But, um, unfortunately, it's not as given as I'd like it to be, but it is a given once you've studied this stuff for a while. But engineering is applied physics. And engineering bows to physics. Right? Physics is the starting point for engineering. Therefore, you can't have an engineering project that violates the basic laws of physics. I mean, I guess you can, but what's the point? I mean, that would just be ridiculous. Nobody would. I mean, that would be the actions of a crazy person. But you go far beyond physics to take into account right? tensile strength and requirements and costs and, and all the location and all these other kinds of things. So it's sort of a necessary given to start with physics, but you go way beyond it in terms of what makes a good bridge can't violate physics but it's just the starting point in the same way ethics can't violate UPB can't can't violate UPB in the same way that an engineer can't violate the laws of physics but it's just a bare bones starting point and frankly it is pretty much the starting point of everyone who, who you'll ever debate with because the people you'll debate with will be debating with you and not putting a gun to your ribs right so they're starting off and they will uh, as I've talked about in a podcast before, they accept self-ownership and ownership of the effects of one's actions because they know it's you making a particular argument. So that is the starting point for everyone who's debating, is, um, is UPB. But of course, ethics goes way beyond that, in the same way that engineering goes way beyond physics. Anyway, I think I've made the case, probably in my own repetitive way more than once. So I want to put that framework in and to say that the two aspects of why be ethical that I'll talk about here are both arguments from effect. And uh, I have no problem with that. I think it would be crazy otherwise. So the first reason why be ethical, why? Is because it gets you goodies, right? So just to take an example, if I fly to the U.S. Uh, and I want to rent a car, I just go slap down a piece of plastic and they give me a car and I drive off with it. And why do they do that? Because I have been virtuous in my prior economic dealings. I pay off my debts. Uh, I, um, I don't overspend. Uh, I return things when I borrow them uh, and so on. So I have a you know, good credit rating, credit card, and all that kind of stuff. So I could do that. That's handy. That's good. That's helpful. Right? So from an economic standpoint, to go and do the right thing or to consistently do the right thing gets you access to far more economic resources and cooperation and collaboration than if you were kind of skeevy and just did things on the fly and didn't return half the stuff. I mean, just think of your friends, right? If you borrow and never pay them back, they're going to not lend to you, which makes your life more difficult if you ever need that kind of money. And, you know, we all need a little help from our friends from time to time. So from an economic standpoint, uh, not stealing uh, stuff from work is good because it keeps you employed and you get far more, I would assume, from being employed in the long run than from being fired and not having a reference and all that kind of bad stuff. So I think that's, that's very important. From an economic standpoint, there's great value in economic cooperation, which of course is one of the basics of uh, a free society, of how it would enforce these kinds of things. Now, on a related but not different note, there is a lot of familial cooperation that you get through virtue. 
right? So when Christina and Izzy and I are out sometimes, we'll see, actually almost always, we'll see grandparents taking care of kids because right? I guess they, the grandparents have retired, the kids are working, their kids are working and their grandkids need care. And this can go on for a long time. I mean, from the age of five to 12 or 14 or whatever, or maybe even earlier. So it can go on for 10 or more years. And that's free, I assume it's free. <laughs> that is a free, accessible, available, uh, and monopolistic, right? Because you assume that, you're, that these grandparents aren't farming themselves out to other kids. So you have a great availability of childcare. Uh, if, you know, family's been good to each other and, and, you know, there is, of course, I assume, the rational expectation that when your parents get old, you'll take care of them and so on, right? So when you cooperate with your family and you do the right thing by your family and they do the right thing by you, you get access to a huge amount of resources, of taking care of each other, of especially when people, when your parents retire, of sort of emergency help and so on. You just get a huge amount of goodies, through that stuff and I, I don't mean this in any cynical way whatsoever I mean it's genuinely right some some friends of ours were talking about how they went on vacation and the only way they could go for dinner is they brought a, a set of grandparents with them so that they could go to eat and then the grandparents could take care of the kids and then vice versa because if you've got kids particularly when they're very young restaurants are your mortal enemy <laughs> and nutrition is a, um, a a distant cousin so that's another way that you sort of gain these uh, these goodies. And other friends that we have, they have uh, a, um, a grandparent living in the house. I mean, live in. Uh, babysitting is a derivative way, is a diminished way to put it, but uh, built-in childcare. Live in childcare, exclusive childcare. And that's all kinds of good stuff, right? So virtue, uh, dealing well with people, being being good to them, uh, having them be good back to you, gains you a huge amount of resources. And, you know, I could go on and on but I think you get the idea. You can think about this in probably six different ways from Sunday. So those economic goodies are one reason why. Economic and exchange goodies are one significant reason to be good. Now, the other reason to be good is more, much more psychological, and it goes something like this. Like the first question to ask is, well, why do we have an unconscious? And I don't mean the unconscious that sort of regulates our kidneys and breathing and spleen and thyroid or whatever the hell it does. I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean, all animals have that. I mean the unconscious where contradictory thoughts and feelings, unacceptable thoughts and feelings, self-rejected or rejected for the sake of social survival thoughts and feelings go. You know, why do we bury the opposites in our mind? Because they're so unacceptable to society as a whole. You have to hide. In many ways, if you're a clear and rational thinker, you spend a good deal of time uh, not being very open about what you believe for various reasons that we've gone into before. I believe that the great unease in human life arises not from a contradiction between values and behavior, because I think we can all do that as long as we're honest about it. Right? It's not... It's not accepted hypocrisy, so to speak, that messes us up. It's when we think that we're good, we don't act in a way that is good, and then we tell ourselves lies about it. But that, to me, is what's really, really unhealthy. So, I mean, I have um, uh, kept silent 
at times when values are being discussed for a variety of reasons, which aren't particularly important or relevant, but I've kept silent when ideas are being discussed that I disagree with. But I don't say to myself, I am a good person for doing that. I don't say to myself, I'm a bad person for doing that. I just accept that that's what I did. I may have some reason for doing it that I know ahead of time, or I may do it and surprise myself, in which case I'll just try and figure it out afterwards. And usually there was a good reason for, uh, for, for being silent at that time. And, and look, I'm not saying this is common. It happens maybe once a year, but it does happen on occasion. But I don't lie to myself about that. And even if I find that there was some ignoble reason, you know, uh, I can't even remember an example. But if I find there's some ignoble reason, then I say, okay, well, I acted ignobly. And that's interesting. I wonder why. And I'll see if I can figure that out. And so I don't lie to myself about situations where I'm not meeting my values. I either accept that I didn't meet my values or I have to adjust my values to take into account the new empirical information that I didn't meet them. And I'm sorry I can't think of any particularly concrete, concrete examples. Uh, it probably doesn't... <laughs> it probably sounds like, well, I'm just so damn virtuous that I can't think of any, but it's, I'm sure it's not that. I'm just a little tired, so... Uh, so I can't think of any, but if I do, I will certainly let you know. And so, as Nietzsche says, you know, I did this, says memory. I could not have done this, says vanity. And in a slow vanquishing of memory, vanity wins, and the history is erased. And that is something that, to me, is what is really, really toxic. And that is the rancid unconscious, that typically exists in you know popular mythology that the unconscious is sort of where you put all of your nasty ugly aspects of yourself and so on well that is um, that is really unhealthy and to act in a consistently ethical manner is to have a good relationship with yourself to not have to bury hypocritical ignoble or negative actions in your unconscious because you can be honest about yourself now, if you're consistently failing to meet your ethical standards, then you have a problem, right? And I think that's, to me, I mean, it may sound like a bit of an odd metaphor, but to me, uh, inconsistency with values on occasion is immaterial. I mean, I, I, I hate the idea of perfection. That is just a, a modern medieval whip to flagellate yourself with. Not in a good cool whip kind of way but wait where was I hang on alright let's start that again shall we but uh, no I, I really dislike the idea of perfection uh, it's like saying that uh, never drinking any alcohol is the only I mean that's I guess that's an Islamic thing right but that's that to me is just silly uh, occasional lapses in uh, judgment or virtue meh who cares who cares? As long as you're honest about them, as long as I'm honest about them, I don't think they have any particular power to do you harm any more than uh, a beer a month is going to uh, axe your liver. I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't count, doesn't matter. And um, I think that actually it's, it's immoral to focus on virtue because then what happens is you uh, lend yourself dangerously, uh, uh, you trail yourself dangerously along the cliff edge of self-attack for failing to meet particular standards of virtue and behavior and blah, blah, blah. And I think that is really unhealthy. Uh, Self-attack doesn't bring anything. 
uh, positive to the table. Uh, that is just a historical self-flagellation. And perfection is a great weapon of self-attackers. And I think it is a very, very toxic and unhealthy uh, thing. And certainly if the goal of life is happiness, then um, self-attack ain't going to do it. Ain't going to do it. Yeah, my self-attackers. If I, when I say self-attack, I was asked of the attackers. It's like, well, where were you before this happened? I mean, I was, I'm always, you know, always open to hearing advice from people from aspects of myself. So where were you before I did X? Now you're flagellating me afterwards. It's like, well, if you didn't speak up beforehand, don't blame me for your silence. Don't attack me for your silence. Forget that. Back off, buddies. But I think that is a very important aspect of virtue that, I mean, don't, don't obviously strive for perfection. But recognize that if you behave in a way that is generally consistent with your values and I'm curious and forgive about yourself if and when you have lapses and use those lapses as ways of exploring more about ethics right problem with rules of course is if you fail to meet them you self-condemn and you don't learn anything else and that to me is really tragic Uh, all lapses are opportunities for learning and it's sort of like um, you have a rule called things fall down right someone shows you a helium balloon and you get all messed up it's like no 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 keep looking learn about the helium balloon learn about lighter than air learn about upwards pressure because you'll learn a lot more about the world by looking at the helium balloon than you will just by rejecting the evidence or thinking this that your theory is stupid and getting mad at yourself or not understanding that no just be curious say whoa something went up what's up with that let's go check it out you could learn a heck of a lot more right so the quote exceptions to your rules are probably just evidence of deeper and richer rules or deeper and and richer interactions that you can imbibe and enjoy and I've, I've almost always found that to be the case if I act in a way that is contrary to my rules it's almost it's always worth exa- it's always worth examining that to find out if there are better wiser quote rules that you can follow that work with the exception or that the exception is trying to point you towards because virtue is complex, particularly as I talked about in podcast two, in a non-virtuous world. So virtue, acting in a way that is consistent with your values, does not require you to lie to yourself, does not require you to feel that unease of contradictory behavior, does not require you to push things into your unconscious with the inevitable result of things like projection, right? So if you act in a way that is ignoble and dishonest, but you claim that you're noble and you're honest, that bad behavior, that self-attack that in a sense you should be exploring, but are not, that is always going to end up lashing out at someone else in your life. And so you you don't gain anything by pushing it into the unconscious. All that happens is you lose control of it. It lashes out at other people and it alienates you from anybody decent in your life over the long run. It just doesn't work at all so that would be my sort of second major argument yeah, first you get lots of goods goodies social goodies friendship goodies lending goodies you know uh, car rentals in <laughs> wherever you're going you get all those kinds of good things and secondly and I would say even more importantly the effect of inconsistent immoral behavior if you're not honest about it if you're honest about it it's something to explore it's something to learn from it's something to, to gain from Right, A mistake that is not explored can never be a gateway to a deeper understanding. An error that is repressed or shut down or projected onto somebody else can never be 
the explosive James Bond eject hatch to a higher floating parachute of wisdom or an avenue to really bad metaphors that don't hang together in any way, shape, or form. So that's my argument. They are both arguments from effect. But since the effect that we're aiming for is happiness and a mere compliance with UPP ain't going to get you there, I think it's a valid approach. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for all of your support. Pa, 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 please drop by freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. Throw a few shekels into the philosopher's bowl and uh, he will be happy. I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone.